Hello and welcome to Here We Go Again, the official podcast of Bolton Wanderers Football Club. We've got a special guest on for our first episode. Over 200 appearances, a massive save from the penalty spot in 1995. Plenty of appearances in the Premier League as well. We're joined by Keith Brannigan. Morning Keith, how are you? Morning, I'm good, thank you. So we're going to have a little bit of a, a run through your career. A lot, Obviously a lot of that is to do with Bolton Wanderers. So we'll go... Right back to the start, you began your career at Cambridge United. How did it all begin? How did it get to that point? I was playing men's football at 14. And in the old systems of those years, they used to have local scouts who trawled the men's uh, football programme on a Saturday and the boys, the kids, won on a Sunday. And, And the fact that I was playing men's football as a keeper at 14, obviously... They heard about that, sent a scout, uh, got invited in for trials, ended up signing schoolboy forms, et cetera, et cetera, the usual thing from then on. But we, there were only five apprentices at the time each year and, and there, there wasn't an academy system. We had a youth team under 16 and a youth team under 18. And the under 18 were the scholars, if you like. The, um, and they, 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 that was filled with five magic. <laughs> that was filled with us five and the rest were schoolboys playing you know at 17 still at school doing sixth form so it was very different from what it is nowadays very different you were there for a while if my research is correct which it, it might not be but for about five years there what, what was it like um i was very very fortunate in that um the first team goalkeeper was, was called Malcolm Webster. Um, the reserve goalkeeper was called Richard Keyes. And they both took me under their wing, so to speak, as well as the other goalkeeper who was there at the time called Dean Gregus. So I got some excellent coaching. They, they, they were goalkeepers playing week in, week out, but they took the extra time to coach the pair of us. Um, and Malcolm went on to have a very successful coaching career. Um, and only just retired last year, actually. Um, and he he brought through goalkeepers right the way through his career, most notably Richard Wright at Ipswich. Um, so I was very fortunate there. I, I had that coaching when I was a kid. Um, I managed to get into the first team very early. I did I did make my debut at 17, but um, that was because of illness. But I got in the team the following year. The club was in decline in terms of finances. We were a very small club. Um, so a lot of kids got in the team at that time. So again, being in the right place at the right time was very lucky for me. A bit like perhaps Ronan Darcy here and Callum, getting in the team very early, getting that exposure. Uh, Sonny as well. Um, that's that's the way my career progressed at an early age. And then, of course, when you're in the team, you catch the eye of other clubs. So uh, <laughs> that's what happened. It's always there's always a lot to learn for a young player when they come into the team. But I mean, particularly in your era when the game was played in probably a slightly different way to what it is now I'm guessing that you you had to learn quickly as a young kid especially in your position as a goalkeeper and you probably got arms and elbows from strikers back then yeah it was a very physical game and, and as Cambridge when I joined the club we were in the League 1 they went down to League 2 and League 3 so we are in the 4th tier very physical game I you know the senior players were great with, with the young lads because they realised that uh, they had to play so it, you learn quickly 
you learn your about your responsibilities rather than what you can actually physically do. You learn your responsibilities and your role within a team and how to control a game and what you need to do during the game. Uh, it's a big learning curve. Something can only be done when you play. Uh, so, yeah, uh, quite a few of us got a lot of experience at that age. Would, would you say that that's something that to younger goalkeepers who might be caught in like the development set of a like where it's like unders football still like an 18 to 23s as soon as you can get out there play men's football because it'll be one of the most learn best learning experiences that you'll ever have yeah we, t- we try in the academy we try and take that responsibility away from the children at little age and then the young men at a higher age we try and take that off them to allow them to express themselves to allow them to, to reach their potential and to allow them to make mistakes so they realize the cap- you know the, the limits and and what their capabilities are once you get into first team football no matter what level it changes the risk factor the the repercussions of making mistakes it changes massively and that to learn that i think you can only go and play league football at any level, first team football at any level, whether that's conference, one under that or one above in, in League Two, particularly for a keeper, because you, you have to you have to sense what's going on in the game. Even if you're a goal down, you might be under pressure. Your teammates need 30 seconds to catch the breath. You can't just keep hurling the ball upfield and expect them to charge up. Moments in games and that those match moments, you can only get that experience when you're playing at first team level. Uh, 23s is a great environment to learn, but then you have to take that into the real world, so to speak. Where results are sort of do or die. Yeah, yeah. And and ultimately, the managers' jobs depend on that. And if you're a player and a manager thinks you might make a mistake that could cost him his job, you're not going to get in the team. Yeah, particularly as a goalkeeper, because, I mean, it, it's... It's one of those positions where you do kind of have sympathy for keepers, especially young keepers when they make mistakes. Because ultimately, when you make a mistake as a goalkeeper, nine times out of ten, that's yeah. a goal. Isn't oh, it's it? it's so unforgiving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously, you'll know that as much as anyone. Yeah, it's it's a huge responsibility, and um, the managers have to trust you. And I, I I tell the lads here, they need to trust you. If you keep giving the ball away, they're not going to trust you. Um, at some point, you need to change from that development stage into a match player um, where you take the right risks at the right times and get the results most of the time players who can't make that adjustment hit a brick wall in their development they, they, they don't know why they're not progressing it's because there's there's a oh, what if he does that again what if he does that again and exactly yeah. it's a major obstacle obviously Cambridge was the first club you played for and then I moved to Millwall they moved into the new den, I believe, a year after, a year or so after you left. So just tell us what it was like playing at the original den, the Thieves' Den. It, it, <laughs> Millwall was a, it was a character-building club for me personally, but uh, for anyone who joined the club at that time, they they were they were on and up, they were they were rolling high. They had players in the team like Terry Herlock, Tony Cascarino, Teddy Sheringham, um, fantastic players, but. Um, that they had something in the dressing room that was special at that time. Um, and the, the den also brought a fear factor for the opposition <laughs> when they turned up. Um, it's, a, it's a very unique club with a very unique set of supporters. Um, I've experienced nothing else like it. 
visiting other clubs and getting a sense and talking to other people. It's it's a very special club. Um, the bond between the players was very close at that time. Um, it, it, it took me a while to break into the team. They had a young keeper there called Brian Horn, who was in England under 20 or under 19 at the time, I think. Um, he was flying and I, I perhaps, looking back, might not have joined Millwall because of that. I, um, but it, in the long run, it was good for me. It, I, I learned a lot about myself, uh, the times out of the team. Um, and I built that, that resilience that I think you need um, as a goalkeeper, that, that always fighting back type resilience. And so it was good in one way, but not the best in another for me. But uh, I enjoyed the club and I enjoyed the players, uh, the, the fantastic times. So, yeah, it was... That, uh, that fan base is quite well known to be passionate, uh, passionate. Very passionate, I think, is the word that would, people all use. Would you say that that's probably somewhere that's unrivaled in terms of the amount of passion that you see coming from this, this, the stand, so to speak? And it emanates to the visiting teams who come there and think, yeah. right, we're really in for a dogfight here. Yeah, the... the, the they, they, they are unique. They are very passionate and um, it certainly had an effect the first year they were in the top flight. Uh, they were riding high in the top six until the, the last couple of months of the season, looking like ending in the top six and then just fell away at the end and ended up about 10th, I think. Um, and, and we were a goal up before anyone ever kicked a ball when they yeah, came to the den. <laughs> because you had all these massive clubs coming to the den thinking, what on earth have I walked into <laughs> here? <laughs> it's yeah. I, it's re really difficult to, to describe it, uh, particularly from me where they're on my side most of the time. <laughs> so, so you see the benefit in having that, that, that support base and, and that environment. It was... Uh, is it one of them where, like, say, the visiting team bus gets it and they're immediately intimidated by fans? Or what is there any specific things that you can look back on and say, wow, that'll have got in someone's head or wow, that got in my head, let alone who's coming here and going to have to play against those? It's, it's probably just turning up to the ground when you when you drive through the scrapyards and you're thinking, <laughs> where, where is this Locking place? In yeah, and then yeah. you get to the front gates and it's very difficult to see the old stadium but it's penned behind some, I can only describe it as prison bars <laughs> at the front. <laughs> so, so if you're a big, massive club walking in there, you're thinking, wow, what, where are we here? Mm. And then the, the, the fans themselves are so passionate and it, everything was really close. You could hear every word. And I don't think they were shy in giving their opinion. A few choice words, so to speak. Yeah, yeah industrial language, I think. And <laughs> industrial estate, industrial language, brilliant. Man. Which is the history of the club, you know, the, the, the Dockers Club. Mm. The, the, you know, they were traditionally supported by the Dockers and that's yeah. where it all comes from, that, that, that East End attitude. That lineage, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the camaraderie in the Millwall group, it was sort of, when you played for him, I imagine the drinking culture in football, the enjoying yourself away from the football field, that... I imagine that was quite prevalent, especially at Club like Millwall. I imagine there was a few that liked to sort of enjoy themselves away from the, the pitch. Yeah, there were some players you couldn't get in touch with on a Sunday, definitely. <laughs> um, there wasn't any mobile phones in them days. Uh, drinking culture in football. I think when I was a, a young player at Cambridge, John Beck joined the club as a player and started to educate the young, the young pros on um, eating right, um, not drinking, 
so it started to change then it did it, it didn't really sink into the mass of players until probably the foreign influx that came into Britain where, where they would abstain from drinking. Yeah, and that seemed to be a big change in the game. It's sports science, the foreign players coming to the game. Yeah, and when, when they were running at full pelt for, for 90 plus minutes and, and we weren't, not me particularly because I didn't run, thankfully, but uh, you, you kind of bought it. I think there's, uh, Ian Wright talked about uh, Petit and Vieira uh, eating mountains of pasta and all the other Arsenal players frowning on it and they were running until the cows came home. And so, you know... You've got two and two together. Yeah, yeah. But definitely in the East End of London in those days, there were lots of welcoming establishments for local players and that was taken advantage of. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, it, there's always been a 48-hour rule in football in my younger years if you're caught anywhere where they serve drinking 48 hours you get two weeks wages taken off you um, so players knew when not to uh, everyone talks about a drinking culture but to be fair it might be the weekend and nothing else some might go out on a Tuesday if the game was a Wednesday, uh, Saturday if there was a special occasion but I, I rarely saw that um anywhere into the 90s I, did. I hardly saw that it was mainly weekends to be honest yeah, after, especially after enough. a win yeah I think you can get away with more things after a win <laughs> wherever you are so yeah. you then had loans at Brentford and Gillingham and then you first moved moved north really yeah. to Bolton Wanderers as a, a London lad what, what was that like moving all the way up here well I, I, I I'm not really a London lad um, I was born in London to Irish parents because okay. they were working over here we moved back to Ireland right. when I was okay. tiny um, and then moved back over to East Anglia near Cambridge All right. when I was about 10, uh, I think I don't remember exactly when. Um, so I, I had quite a thick Northern Irish accent that no one could understand, so I'd lost it just to be able to be understood. Mm. Um, so that I'm not really a London lad even though I played my early football down south, as you'd say. So it wasn't so much a culture shock to, to come up? I loved it. I loved it. There was a lack of traffic that I loved because, <laughs> yeah. honestly, getting into Millwall's training ground was horrendous. You, you soon you soon learnt every road that all the black taxi drivers knew. You just... Stay you away. Dodging it. Oh, it was... Yeah, it's hard on the It's a nightmare. So, but I, I must say that it's caught up up here, the traffic. Oh yeah, it's caught up definitely. Yeah. When I first came up here, you could get to Old Trafford in fifteen minutes from Central Bowen. You can't do Don't that. Don't think you'll do that anymore. No, no. wow, you guarantee it. Yeah, it was brilliant. I loved it, and I loved the weather for a keeper. It was always wet, so there was never any of these bone hard grounds to dive on. It was nice. So you never had to wear a Chris Kirkland baseball cap to it. <laughs> <laughs> Go on there. No, no. So. What were your first impressions of the club then when you came up here? Like, how long did it take you to realise, if at all, that there was to be the sort of on-field success that was to come in, in, in the years that were, that were to come? My first impression was the dressing room was very similar to Millwall's dressing room in terms of some big personalities. Um, and there was a bond between... You could see that bond. Um, and they were very welcoming to me and... McGinn and David Lee, I think, the three signings that Bruce brought in. Um, the, it reminded me a lot of, of Millwall. I thought, hello, there's, there's something in this. 
Um, if that could just remain, uh, we, we could do something here. Um, so my first impressions were, I, I like it. I like the lads. There were some good players, the, the level of, I mean, I've been on loan at Gillingham. I've been on loan at Brentford through various reasons. Um, and they weren't as good as Bolton players. One or two were, but on the whole, very good players at the, in the team. So I was, I was quite pleased, to be honest. I was, uh, and then, obviously, you, you, you get to learn about the stature of the club, the history of the club, what it means to the supporters. Um, you get that impression over time and you think, wow, this is a massive club. Uh, has been a massive club and deserves to always be a massive club. Um, you mentioned Bruce there, Bruce Rio. Mm. Uh, what was he like to play under as a manager? We had various stories from members of staff who played under him. But from your opinion, what was he like? Uh, he, he was quite unique in his uh, outlook on the game. He was very black and white in his outlook at the game. Um, he wanted 100% commitment at all times. So training, shin pads were on, gloves were off, tracky buttons were off, proper tackles. Um, we, we trained as we played. Um, but he, he also had that family orientated belief, which broke down the, uh, the fear factor in terms of he's been known as a strict disciplinarian. Um, but no, if you did things right, that there was a mutual respect and, and he was big on family, um, you know, and particularly for players who lived further afield, they'd get time off sometimes to, to dedicate to the family. So there's that mutual mutual respect, I think. Yeah, he was known as a hard man, but I think he was only a hard man to people that, that didn't agree with him. Um, you have to be on the right side of him. All you needed to do was give 100%. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the respect that he wanted um, from you and then gave back to you. Um, so, you know, I, I know certain players talk about him shaving at Middlesbrough you have to be clean shaven mm. and etc etc but I think um, those were his ways of, of just being a, a manager I suppose just seeing what, what he can get out of players how players react I yeah, think uh, yeah. he's probably the only person that Tony Kelly's afraid of. I think he's told us that yeah we've heard the story yeah, yeah they heard the stories of him and uh, Mr Kelly on his uh, weighing in on one day and, and one, one day the next yeah Needing to meet a set way. Set way, so, yeah. So you played, if, if I'm right, you played under Bruce at Millwall as well. So yeah. it must have been good, but you know, good to be reunited with me, really. Well, I, Bruce and I didn't see eye to eye at Millwall okay. because um, I, I wanted more out of football than just being a bit part player. And I, I felt that at Millwall, I'd come to the end of the road in terms of um, establishing myself as first team player. I thought that uh, I, that boat had sailed um, and I, I needed to prove myself again. I need to prove myself because I had a cruciate ligament injury and I, don't, I didn't think I was ever going to get that, that fair crack at the whip at Millwall. Um, so when Bruce wanted me to extend my contract there, I, I said no. Um, and, and he was a bit upset with that. Um, but once I told him why and what my feelings were and what I wanted in my career, I, th I think he understood. I ended up signing an extension at Millwall uh, because 
you know, after a couple of months of why won't you, we saw each other's point of view and, and moved forward. But when he came to Bolton, he obviously knew my ambitions um, and brought me with him. And I had no hesitation in signing with Bruce again. Um, but in terms of Millwall, we, we didn't quite see eye to eye. Mm. So it was, uh, I was quite surprised when the phone call came, but I had no hesitation no. Um, to sign for him because he knew my ambitions, basically. So. Mm. And then one of the first big nights came not long into your time at the club, the, uh, the FA Cup win at Anfield. What was that like? Because it must have been amazing. It, in Ireland, when I was a boy, you supported two clubs, or either one of two clubs, Man United or Liverpool, because mm. that's all Irish television would televise. Oh, really? Yeah, the, you know, the big match or match of the day, it didn't exist. Mm. Uh, they would play Liverpool game or the United game, so the whole of Northern Ireland was supporting one or the other. So I was a closet Liverpool supporter, I suppose. <laughs> um, You're more special to play there then, I guess. So when I, when I, I played there with Millwall. Oh, right. um, and that, for me, that, that, that ticked one of those ambition boxes that I wanted. Um, but then to go back there with Bolton, uh, to be honest, I was gutted to go back there because we should have won the first game. Um, I didn't really want to go back. Um, but to, to go there and then do what we did, you know, will forever stay with me and people associated with that night. It's I keep hearing about it now. And mm. it's, uh, God knows how many years ago it is now. It's, um, yeah, it was a great night, but particularly more sweet for me because as a kid, I followed Liverpool, if you like. I don't think you'd ever call me a supporter, but I followed them because I followed them, not United. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> did the comments that came from Liverpool's end after the first game, did, did they spur the group on? Because I know that the, sort of the word from their end was that they, they'd done the hard part of Burnham and that it was just going to be a routine job of beating Bolton at Anfield. Uh, do you know what? The, the, for me, other players would tell you different things, but for me, it was it was just another game that we had to confront. Um, it was a special game, but there was no Churchill-like speech before. There was no um, inspiring moment. We just did the usual thing. We trained the usual way. We usual prep turned up usual things in the dressing room warm up everything was just the same and i don't know we, we we looked relaxed as a team and we played and we played really well so for, that's my own personal memory of it it might have been different for other people but uh, that's what i remember it was a special game but it was treated the same as any other game you know so Apart from the ticket thing, that was mental. <laughs> can you get me tickets? Can you get me tickets? Anybody, yeah, anyone who please. Man and a dog wanted to mm. go to that game. Um, yeah, what I was going to say is, did, from your perspective as a goalkeeper, was it surreal seeing what was happening in front of you, considering the opposition that you were coming up against? I mean, obviously they're getting back to the, them heights now, Liverpool, but back then... I mean, they, they were they, right up there. They were one of the top sides, and obviously the, the holders of the FA Cup as well, with some big players. Yeah, I, I think I don't. I don't think they were quite what they were four or five years mm. previous. I, I think they'd come to that and they were rebuilding. Um, 
we honestly thought we had a chance, particularly after the first game. We, we, we knew we could score goals no matter who we played against. Uh, we played free and open football. It was a case of, can we defend? Um, not as defenders or goalkeeper, but as a team, can we can we see things out um, as we didn't do on the on the game before? So the early goal was wow. This changes everything for me. We, we've got to be really switched on now and protect this and protect this. And, and the lads were terrific. And not only did we protect it, we we opened them up when we got possession of the ball. The passing and moving and attacking play. Uh, it was just terrific on that night. I mean, David Lee was, as you he know, was unplayable. He was, yeah, he couldn't yeah. defend against him. Um, so it was, it was a great all-round performance in terms of nullifying what they had, and they had a lot of firepower. They had some good players, and then making sure we could get at them when we got the ball. So there was never, never anything else about us other than attack, attack when we got the ball. Um, you know, put them under pressure and see what they got. So it worked. <laughs> the, the dressing room at that time, obviously we know the likes of Tony Kelly and John McGinley on a, on a personal mm -hmm. level. And imagine the dressing room was probably at times quite a lively place, especially oh, when it needed to be. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a quiet person by nature, so I was even more quiet in the dressing room. Uh, I didn't have to speak because there was 10 voices going at the same time. It was crackers, mm. the, the amount of banter, if you like, the, that flew around and big characters and very, very witty and very sharp minds. It's, um, it's one of the special reasons that, that that dressing room was so unified and, and performed. It's something, you know, I, I've lucky enough in my career, I've been lucky enough to be involved in three dressing rooms like that. Two we've mentioned and the last one at Ipswich, uh, when I went as a, a backup to Wrighty, it was again, very similar to what I'd experienced before. I knew there were special group of players because I'd seen all the ingredients. Um, so, you know, I, I have experienced other dressing rooms, but uh, those three in particular, there was something magical about them and they got results. Mm -hmm. So, so on something, say if you went to, into the half-time break 2-0 down, would Bruce Rioch take over or would there be certain voices in the group that would be, be sort of policing it themselves and then letting everyone know that it, this is not acceptable? A bit of both. Um, players would be talking, disagreeing, agreeing, sorting things out and Bruce would either be really angry or he'd be meticulous with his half-time talk. Um, it depended on the nature of what was hurting us. If, if he felt there was a, a lack of effort or a lack of cohesion, uh, it'd go nuts. Um, if, if there was some technical, tactical aspect not working, he'd change things. Um, and we'll talk about the biggest change he made later on, I suppose. But um, it was a mixture of everything. Sometimes walking off the pitch, we'd have things sorted before before the manager would ever get involved. Um, but we tried to sort things on the pitch as well. Um, I don't know if you, <laughs> some games you can see players having disagreements on the pitch. And, but it was all because of one thing, and that was we all wanted the same thing, and that was to win the game. There was never any personality issues. It was, it was all to get the job done. It really was. And if you if you got stick off someone, it was probably deserved, mm. because no one ever gave you stick if you were doing it right. You got banter. You got you got the Mickey taken out of you. But uh, it was all. Everyone was focused about winning. It was it was such a good dressing room, really good. That's a brilliant ingredient, that isn't it? When, when you're all pulling in the same direction, because I imagine 
at that time, listening to what you said, that there weren't really any bad eggs or people that you you know you felt weren't the right fit. No, and there were players who weren't afraid to speak to each other uh, and the manager. They weren't afraid to speak out about X, Y, Z. So you had leaders on the park in every department, um, in every position, who understood the game and understood the, the, the management's requirements as well, uh, particularly what not to do. You know, if someone did something wrong, you'd know pretty quick. So every player was, was a big character who it wasn't afraid to um, change things on their own. You know, they took it upon themselves to do things sometimes. It, it's like having seven, eight, nine captains on the pitch, um, but all unified, all together, not, not disagreeing, all understanding what, what the game was about. Um, and that was the beauty of that dressing room, the huge characters. Um, but again, I mean, no player wants to go on the pitch and lose a game of football. Everyone wants to win. But you've got leaders and followers, and in that team there were so many leaders. I think it was something special about it. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's brilliant because I think there's the one criticism of the modern game, particularly obviously at the top, is that in the space of sort of the last 10, 15 years, that the, the leaders there's not so many of them anymore. I mean, you can go back to sort of the Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira days, and then and then that, after that, it doesn't seem to be tons of leaders and, and obviously they're a massive part of a group aren't they uh, yeah. you, you've got I mean the football has changed in its style massively but I think the characters at play are still the same characters just the faces have changed that's all they've still got the same characters and I think it's that blend of character in, in a club once you get that mix right things start to happen um you can lead by example, you don't have to be vocal, you can be the hardest worker. I mean, David Beckham was the hardest worker in that team. No, nobody seems yeah. to realise that. They, they, they all remember his free kicks and his crossing the ball, but he worked so hard. And passed by. So he, he, <laughs> he led by example. Um, and there's Stuart Pearce wasn't a very vocal player, but he was intimidating and he was... 100% and he led by example by the way third, yeah, yeah and, it's them and, eyes yeah. <laughs> and then you've got obviously your vocal leaders um, and there's the leaders in the dressing room as well who probably aren't seemingly very vocal on the pitch but in the dressing room they have a massive influence they've got that respect that, that, that aura about them so there's many different types of leaders just because they don't look like it but I do believe that when you get the right blend in the dressing room in the team uh, things go for you a bit more. Uh, I really believe that. So, signing the right players is a lot to do with character as well. What, what are they like? Absolutely. In, in their character, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that before. That it's not just about you know he's got ability yeah. and he scored X amount of goals. It's uh, reading up it, managers that he's worked under. You know, asking what he's like and what sort of a character. He yeah, is. yeah. Um, so, another game that's still spoken about around this stadium by members of staff. May nineteen ninety five. Yeah. A 4-3 win in the player final against Reading. What were you thinking at 2-0 down when Stuart Lovell stepped up to take that penalty? <sighs> to be honest, I thought we, we, we were... I never ever thought we, we would lose a game football, even at whatever, 1-0 down, 2-0 down, 3-0 down. But for me, personally, my heart dropped 
because I thought at 2 0, okay, we can recover this, we can get something back at 3 0. I thought my heart dropped, and I thought this is going to be so difficult. Um, so that was my first reaction. And then it's about, right, well, who's taking it? Because the manager normally takes them. And I was pretty much set in my head what I was going to do if he was taking them, but he wasn't playing, he was, he was a sub. So I, I had no idea who was going to take it. Um, so I just thought, what would I do in this situation? This, this wins them the game. I thought, you, you'd be some kind of cool player if you were going to place this in the corner with your side foot. You've got to put your laces through it. So mm. that, that, that was my decision to go to my right was because I thought any right-footed player is just going to put his laces through it. Um, then when I saw his run-up and everything, I just went, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm going right because I don't think he's going to place it. This seals the game for him. This is a massive penalty for them, as it is for us. Um, luckily, I was right. So, um, But even then, you know, we get in at half-time, two down is better than three. Bruce made the substitution with Fabian coming on, injected some pace. I think we ended up with four strikers in the front line. <laughs> and we scored in the, what, 70-something minute, the first goal. Um, Amazing effort from the lads, amazing effort, you know. I'm happy to play my part, but, but what they did after that was just unbelievable, tremendous. Um, once we got the first goth, you know, I thought, we've done it now, we can do this. Um, fantastic experience, really good game. <laughs> Obviously, you played your part, and I'm sure you, you'd been modest about it, but, I mean, I think every Wanderers fan would probably agree that that, that point in the game that penalty save was the pivot because like you say then uh, Fabian De Freitas comes on and, uh, and the game changes it's that moment that allows us to think you know what well, we, we, we can still come out of this game the other side yeah I mean you talk about turning points of the game yes my penalty probably changed the mood of everyone both sets of fans and players uh, definitely the substitution at half time changed things on the pitch that injection of pace and power that he had um, just changed the whole game and uh, you know, we should have scored earlier. Um, mm -hmm. We were playing kind of wide open. We're chasing the game. We were leaving the risk to concede another. But uh, you know, it's just a tremendous game, and it 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 wasn't tactics. It wasn't um, technical skill and ability that won that game. It was what we've just been speaking about for the last fifteen minutes. It was the character in the dressing room, uh, that bond, that unity. That's what won the game. Um, because we could all play football, but you need that injection of something else to, for their moments, and that—that's what won the game. That, as well as a couple of key points, but that won the game. It's, it's massive, isn't it? Psychology in football. Mm. If you—if you could uh, put that in a package, you'd be rich. <laughs> yeah. So the 15-minute half-time period, you're in, you're in the dressing room. I—I I imagine for different teams, there could be different things going on. But what was going on in the change rooms at, at half-time? Was there anything that you can remember being said or people... Heads down? Yeah, or... with heads down, people shouting and screaming. Was everyone calm? What, it was what quite was it? calm. It was quite quiet. The, the, there wasn't a blame culture in the club. Um, players rarely pointed fingers. It was more about how can we fix things. Um, it was quite calm. Toddy and Bruce were, were calm. Um, they just said score a goal and you'll be okay get a goal um, they brought Fabian on they explained the changes you're playing here you're playing there 
no one, no one said, I don't like playing there. You know, no one. It was all about how do we overcome this? How do we hurt them? Because they were a good footballing team uh, and they were hurting us um, massively, the, the possession they kept. But we always felt that if we could get at the back four, that we could get some joys, particularly with the players we had on the pitch. So it was very calm. Um, a bit dejected, but there was some hope because we knew 2 0 is not over. Particularly if you get the next goal, it's it's not over. So the mind games begin, and then you're all over the. You can become all over the place as a team. When the extra time, when we got it to extra time, I, I knew we'd win. They, they were on the floor sitting down, and we stood up listening to what's going to happen for the next, you know, half an hour. The, They'd gone. Their heads had gone. They were, they were drained of energy and demoralised. Um, I, I knew we were we were on the up. We were buzzing. Uh, we just pulled it back. Uh, I, I felt we would win. Um, but even at, at half time in the game, there was always hope. And that's 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 the club at the time. That was the dressing room at the time. Always looking to fix things. Always chasing for lost causes. You know, whether that's a, a player running after a long ball. You know, at the end of a game, sprinting 50, 60 yards, just so the opposition can't turn back, or fighting back from a goal or two down. That dressing room did it all. As you know, more often than not, you know. So it, it was a special group of players, and and that won the game. Definitely won the game. The hardest thing for managers is is keeping that going when you rebuild teams. Exactly, yeah. And obviously, Premier League football came as a result of winning that game. What did it feel like at full time, knowing that as a group you were going to be playing in, in the Premier League after that? Um, to be honest, I don't think anyone thought about that. The journey home on the bus was the best bus journey I've ever had in yeah. my life. Is <laughs> <laughs> there an excuse for a lively bus journey? I think that's it. Especially with them characters it. that are in the team. They, they, they could know. put a drink on. Uh, and Peter Shilton made a, a, a speech near the end of that journey and said uh, he's never experienced a dressing room like it. He really did. And, something coming from Yeah, like yeah. yeah. He's, he's been in top teams and played mm. for England a million times. Um, yeah, I did, to be honest, I didn't think about Premier League. It was a good journey home. What was it like working with him, Peter Shilton? Because obviously, incredible last name, really, doesn't it? He's a legend at, at club level and international level. Well, that's what he was called, legend, as soon as he came in. Um, he got the nickname legend. He, Bruce brought him in because we needed cover in the area. Um, he just said, learn as much as you can from him. And I, mean, I, I don't think he can get much better, regardless of his age, <laughs> than yeah, sort of oh, cover. Was he, was he well into his 43, 44, mm, I think. Yeah. Um, that wealth of knowledge, though, must have been. You you can't, you know, when you I, I I can't dive around anymore, but I can still do what I do, but I just can't extend myself with that youthfulness anymore. Mm -hmm. So when he when he came to the club, I just tried to pick out everything about his style and what he did that made him look better than me, because he still looked better than me when he was saving shots. And I'm thinking, how does he do it? So I, I really, really picked apart his whole technical side of his game, the stunts and what he did and how he did it and started to put little things of his into my game and it really helped me massively. I, start, I really started to understand about the human body and, and, and how it can move 
when I saw a master at it and he was a master at it. He, you know, he, he wouldn't get to the top corner anymore, but he would save everything within his space. He was phenomenal uh, and he'd make it look easy. And I, I just studied him. I really did study him. Um, and I'm so pleased to have done that because again, as a young goalkeeper, there was Shilton and Clements. There was Pat Jennings, there was Phil, but those two got the most exposure because of England. Mm -hmm. and, and I watched them all the time and he's a hero to me. Uh, the next best thing was Clements coming in the week after, it would have been brilliant. <laughs> uh, so I, I studied him, great for me personally. I, I, I learned quite a lot and put it into my game as well. So yeah, massive, brilliant. Very yeah, privileged well, for me. Yeah, I imagine, yeah, it's really privileged to play with someone like that. And obviously, Premier League football came, like I said, as, as a result of, of the promotion. What was it like playing in the Premier League? Because I imagine, I mean, any football will tell you that they want to play at the top. I imagine it's a, a dream come true, really. Yeah. And what were the main differences from playing such, from like the same team, the top tier? Were there many in terms of the pace of the game or the physicality or the... Quality, were there anything that... Quality and punishment. Yeah. Punishment. Yeah, a lot of people say that even now, you can't make mistakes at that level, can you? The quality of the players you're playing against and the punishment level, when you make a small error, turns into a goal. Um, the, the, I mean, I, I played there with Millwall, um, so I, I kind of knew that in the first place. The, the, I think the big thing for Bolton Warners in particular was Bruce getting lured by Arsenal. Mm so late in the summer um, they finally got him uh, and I know I spoke to Gordon Hargreaves and, and um, he tried desperately to keep him here I don't know the background information whether Toddy was prepared with, with transfer targets I don't know but I got the feeling that, that Bruce might have had a few players to bring in I don't know if that if if that still happened yeah, yeah. or not, if with Toddy. So I get the feeling that, that Toddy needed a bit more time than late summer to, to get his teeth into the job. As he proved through the following year when he started to make signings, which ended up killing the, the second flight, then we, we won that easily uh, with his signing. So I, I think if Toddy would have had more time in the summer, he could have got people in. Yeah, he'd have had a better chance. So I very optimistic the dressing was always optimistic uh, it became apparent quite early on that we were not going to struggle but we weren't ready I don't think we were ready as a as a, as a squad it wasn't big enough um, and I think there, there needed to be a few signings uh, to give ourselves a better chance but it didn't turn out that way I didn't, I didn't feel we were ready basically mm, so uh, I think that's a common thing that actually about that season that when we we went up and everything that went on in the summer, for, I can't speak from personal experience. wasn't Don't think I was born, but my, just just my dad used to say that we needed to come down to go back up because of what had happened with Bruce and he, he said that the ability of um, Todd was there. It was clear to see, but just everything that had gone on had taken its toll on the club yeah. as a whole. But, how much of a blow was it when Bruce left? Then, like as a group, when you found out that he was leaving, obviously you you can't really argue with the fact that he was leaving in the sense that he was going to a club like Arsenal. But it still must have been a huge blow to to you as a group. Yeah, um, the, the, obviously with Toddy taking over, the continuity was still there. 
in terms of how we were going to break up the day and the training, etc. That was that was still there. So that was a, that was a good thing. I think once the game started and we started losing games, we we realised as a group of players that this was going to be very difficult. Um, so it's, you know, full of optimism. Suddenly the dressing room takes a hammer blow. Suddenly the mood drops out. Um, and then you get the changes. So Toddy makes the signings. Uh, um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a rebuild process going on. Um, and I think that that year in the Premier League was was finding out who was good enough to stay in the Premier League and who wasn't and who was going to be replaced uh, for for another go at it. Um, from a management point of view, I can see them doing that, thinking, right, I've got to I've got to get strength in there. I've got to challenge him more. I've got to. I'm not sure about this player. Let's bring another one in. And let them fight it out. I can see all that going on from a management point of view. Whilst we were struggling in the Premier League, whilst I think we learned a lot about the club and the players at that level during that season, um, which set us up for the following season. Magical season, season after that, just missing out and staying up, and then Sam took it to another level mm. um, on the, on the foundations that were put in place way back then. So, so from the first season in the Premier League, that um, first season with Colin Todd in charge, who were the sort of big hitters in the Premier League at the time? And obviously, it was a difficult season. Um, who, who were sort of the, the, the top sides and, and the top players that you can remember coming up against? Well, United were the, were the top team, weren't they? they um, and all the class of 92 had broken through. They were all playing, um, but they still had the old guard there as well. They, they, they were the team to beat. Um, Liverpool were still, although they were, they were changing, they were still quite highly challenging, if you like. Um, just the big six, Arsenal were really, they, I think they were called the unbeatables, weren't they? At that mm. time, they were really uh, changing um, they had the old squad there under George Graham. Bruce had left and taken over, and then, you know, they brought Dennis Burkamp in, and so they they were in a, a changeover period as well. But they, what they still had, Tony Adams and and Co was formidable. Um, obviously, Bruce had a season with them. Then Wenger came in and brought even better players in terms of midfield players like continental style of football with the science and change in the yeah. way that he changed yeah. the game but he's probably like a trailblazer in that of, aspect a lot of like the um, you know the old guard at Arsenal um, I don't know like your rear pals and people like that they, they say that that was a it's a big moment kind of when and obviously by the, by the sounds of what people have said in, in the past Bruce didn't really get a fair crack of the whip at Arsenal but they say that obviously when Fenger came in and brought the continental players uh, that changed. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what went on. I, I think they expected like every big club to win things with, with mm. someone like Bruce, and when it didn't quite go how he wanted, um, they changed it. Um, I don't think Bruce regrets going there. Arsenal don't ask you twice to be their manager. Exactly. You know? um, exactly. But yeah, and the other team that were flying were Blackburn. Everyone forgets that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they, they won the Premier League. They won the Premier League, and they had all this money. Uh, it was when did Sky come in to 92 so there still wasn't the amount of money there is now mm. so with the owner's money in at Blackburn they, they had some great players yeah. um, playing against Shearer and Co so Sutton and Shearer yeah, mm. yeah they, they were flying yeah 
So the, the season that followed, 96, 97, that was promotion again. 100 goals, not quite 100 points, 98 points. Still sticks to me, Dad, that. <laughs> <laughs> what, but what a season. Absolutely destroyed that, um, I don't know, first division, I think it was called then. Absolutely destroyed it that year. Yeah, we, we uh, again, we, we were rebuilding during the Premier League relegation. Um, we knew we brought some great players in, different qualities than what we had. Um, Nathan Blake came in, his his pace up front, you know, we, we had pace up front at times. The players weren't slow who played up there, but he was quicker than the rest. And he was quicker than most defenders that he played against. He was, I mean, he's, he was not known for um, pressing the ball down for 90 minutes, but... He's uh, one of them where you get, if you gave him the ball, you think, right, he can do something Something could magic. always happen if you gave him the ball. Mm. If, you, if you asked him to chase the ball, he might not. He <laughs> <laughs> that energy. Well, yeah, he's the, you learn as you go through the years that the different body shapes and, and different body requirements meant that he needed that little rest before he could explode again. Uh, and when he went, he went, he, he was uncatchable. So he brought Nathan Blake in and, and Jerry Taggart, Chris Fairclough, Goodney Bergson came in a couple of years previous. So his influence was really starting to come through in the team. He was, he was a leader on and off the pitch. Um, I think the whole dressing, you know, Scott Sellers, John Sheridan, mm. uh, Peter Beardsley, the, the, the amount of experience that Tully brought in, um, well, it showed what yes. can happen when you get that blend right it's again. It's a great squad, that, isn't yeah. it? You yeah. name the names there, some brilliant players. Um, of course, as well, it was the last season at Burnham Park. I mean, you couldn't have really thought of a better, a better, a better way, way to, to do it now. At Burnham Park. But what, what was it like at that time when the club prepared for a move to to this stadium, the Reebok Stadium, as it as it was known, then was it emotional it, in many ways? Exciting. It was quite a was like? quite a controversial move from a fan's perspective yeah. because um, moving to this particular site, people away said, "Oh, he's away from the town yeah. centre. Would it take it away?" But from like a player's perspective, did it make a big difference? Because Burnham was a special place. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether every single player minded moving some players probably didn't want to that much but the pitch we played on despite the best efforts it was slanted <laughs> at one side and well, the best efforts at the ground stand. yeah despite Richard's efforts <laughs> and him pulling his hair out when we trained on it um, it was it was very very tough to play on it for the whole year, you, you tired quickly on it. It was bobbly and soggy and boggy. Oh, it was. It it had its day. I, I think um, redeveloping that area was wasn't a starter because of the proximity of everything around it. Um, uh, so I think they looked at, at at that, the infrastructure, the access to it. I think they looked at everything uh, with Burnham Park and realised that it just possibly couldn't be done. Um, I don't think they they decided to leave straight away. I think that they had to uh, when they looked at everything, you know, objectively. Um, in terms of players, to be honest, I, I look forward to the playing on a decent pitch every week because, you know. That's the way you looked at it, really, yeah. Once you moved, it was quite sterile. 
to begin with. Um, it was whitewashed walls, breeze block walls. There was no, it's not like it is now with uh, nice wood and little seats and things. Mm. It was it was just basic walls and a bench to sit on. It was it was quite a sterile place and it didn't feel like home, I've got to admit. It, it felt weird. It took a while. It was a nice pitch. It was a great stadium, but it didn't feel like home. Uh, I didn't feel the magic going out that you did at Burnham Park. It's a place that where you'd left so much history to come to a place that history would be made, but that little transition Black period would be, yeah. yeah. What I realised was that, that, that the stadium was designed acoustically as well. And uh, I've sat in the stands in this stadium and it's very quiet. But I've been on the pitch in the stadium and it's very loud, I think acoustically. Mm-hmm. So when fans think it's not got an atmosphere, it's not quiet, it, it actually has, but for the players on the pitch it has, mm. uh, it really goes to travels to the pitch well. Uh, I realised that thinking, why is it not as loud as it is on the pitch? You know, so you, when we score a goal, it's quite loud, but on the pitch it's definitely, it really is, you, you, you can't hear. Um, and I don't think fans get that because they've not been on the pitch. Mm. Uh, so it was, there was a lot of pluses with the stadium. The pitch is fantastic, the, the facilities, the infrastructure. It just took a while to feel at home, um, only because of the magical nights we've had at that stadium. Yeah, personally, it's hard to leave that leave that behind, isn't it? Some I mean, of the evening games where where we'd asked Des how many people were in tonight, Des, and he'd say twenty eight thousand. It'd be like thirty five, forty thousand. Yeah, it was just packed. Um, they were magical nights, and uh, that's something that took a while to recreate. At that. That's what the Reebok it was then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a while, but um, it certainly happened. You know, once there was, again, some more success, it, uh, and then it, it takes time, but uh, it wasn't immediate for me anyway. It, it took a while. Around that time, you, you got ECAP for the Republic of Ireland, played in a, a goalless draw against Wales. And, I mean, first and foremost, you, it's a clean sheet there. What can you remember from that? 100% record. <laughs> 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 oh, it was a horrible night. It was. I think Cardiff, wasn't it? Oh, it was horrible. It was so windy and so wet. Driving rain, wind, gale force wind blowing. It was a horrible night. Um, I didn't enjoy it one bit, to be honest. But I, 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 the achievement that uh, even that came through injury. Alan Kelly got injured on a Sunday, uh, and Mick said I was lucky. Um, <laughs> It's something I'd always wanted to do. My, all my family's Irish, and um, even though I was born in London, I consider my heritage very much Irish, and it was something I always wanted to do. Um, it, it just, I just couldn't get it off the ground quick enough when I was younger, and then Millwall got, I got stuck at Millwall. And then when I came to Bolton, they already had um, Packy Bonner, Alan Kelly, then Shea Given came along, and I just thought, there's no way I'm gonna get this. Uh, I keep pushing and pushing, and I managed to get the one appearance, um, which tick a box, you know, that childhood ambition. Oh, It'll stick with you forever, though. Yeah. I would have loved more, but uh, I, when you look back at the pathway in my career, I can see why I didn't get in the squads there and I didn't get in there. And when I did get in, those people were already there. That You, you have to just take that as a footballer. You've got to take the knocks and, and not let it affect you. And, uh, I managed to get my one appearance, so... <laughs> I'm happy with that. Who were the um, in in that game? Obviously, 
late 90s who were the sort of big players whether they played in the game or not for the Republic of Ireland and for Wales at that time did, did any of those sort of big hitters play in that game that you can, that you can recall well I'd been involved in uh, quite a few Irish squads so we used to go across and train on. so we'd fly across on Saturday train on the Sunday up to the game on, on Tuesday Wednesday and people in the Irish squad at the time were Steve Staunton Roy Keane Chris McGrath um all all those players Tony Cascarino Ray Houghton did I say Steve Staunton? Um, yeah, yeah massive players in that squad at the time and they'd all achieved huge things with Ireland and their football club so for me it was again going into an environment where huge players huge talent huge characters it was it was great insight for me um and then the Mick had started to bring the younger players through as well. So Shea Given, along with Rory Delap and et cetera, et cetera, Kenny Cunningham, all those players were, were in the squad. So there was a rebuild process going on there. But it, personally, I, I was pleased that I was involved with that calibre of player that, that, that achieved so much in World Cups and seeing them train and training with them. It was a great insight for me. I mean, the Welsh, Welsh team that night was John Hartson, Vinnie Jones. Um, I can't remember too many mm. of those. Gigs played. Or I don't think Giggs played. I think Speed might have, but I can't remember, to be honest. Um, no, I can't remember. I didn't, I didn't focus too much on the opposition. Mm. Uh, it was just the weather that. The weather that sticks in the mind. Strong <laughs> <laughs> It's horrible. So, yeah, over 200 games for the club, for Bolton Wanderers, for, uh, in about an eight year period. What was. I mean, we might have already touched on it, but what games stand out for you are there any that we've not mentioned that you think that was a, an amazing game for whatever reason yeah. okay. well, there were a few uh, the Swindon semi-finals where again we came back from a, an away leg deficit to, to, to go through to Wembley against Liverpool in the League Cup uh, that was a great night um, did the who did we play The, uh, oh, there was a game against Norwich as well. They were Premier League, I believe. That was a, it seemed to be evening games where the atmosphere is different in the evenings. Yeah, it does seem to like agree more. Yeah. It's up a notch, especially yeah. if you've got a crowd in. And in the first season, um, we'd, we'd stumbled and started and, and managed to get uh, up there in with a chance of promotion. So we had a, we had a run in, uh, and I, I can't remember the the amount of points we got but certainly the last six seven games we I think we nearly won every single game and we had to and there was one night in Hull where we were a goal down Alan Stubbs sent off because he saved the ball on the line with his hand uh, and we needed to win um, because it was between us and Port Vale Stoke had run away with the league and, and we were nip and nip so nip and tuck so to speak and um, we won that game 2-1 from a goal down and I don't know how many fans came over but it was more than 6,000 the, the place was heaving mm. and, and they all came on the pitch about three times during that game <clears throat> and I remember Phil Brown asking the referee how long there was to go and the ref said we won one at the time and the ref said it's just, just a couple of minutes Brown said well, can you add some on because we need to win. There was yeah. no sit back with ten men and, and go for a draw, and we ended up getting the winner. And again, that that 
a very special night, not because we got the result, but because of the, the whole thing about the fans being there. Of how it unveiled on the night. Coming from behind, needing to win, because Port Vale were winning every game. Uh, I think we picked them by a point or two in second place and got automatic promotion, which was great for us. Um, but that, that running in particular, but that game uh, always always sticks in my mind. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's various games, but those, those were special, those ones, for me personally anyway. Um, and uh, during your time at the club, towards the end, uh, emergence of a young Finn that came through the ranks. Yeah, you'll see. You'll see. What was he like to uh, have alongside his training, character-wise, and as a player, obviously we know how just how good he was. Yeah, you never knew he was there. I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he came in, to be fair, I, 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 I thought, wow, we signed a good one here. And I thought, I'm going to have to up my game to stay in the team. But I think what you see needed to learn at that time was, we spoke about it earlier, the match play, uh, the pressure, how to cope with that pressure. And I think as a youngster, he got in the team. I think I got injured, got himself in the team. And you could see his ability, but I don't think he learned the craft of, of playing and coping. Um, but he was always going to, he's a strong character. Um, and uh, he's uh, he's got a sharp mind as well. <laughs> Um, and he would speak more if it was in his nature, but he just doesn't. Um, <laughs> on the pitch, he, he does. But he, he took he, he, he took a little while to to learn that craft. He was already a good goalkeeper, but learning how to cope with the pressures and how to cope when you make an error and players are on your back and then managing to brush that off. Once once he got that, wow, he was he was away. He was one of the Into best the keepers. In, well. oh, one of the best keepers in Premier League, without a shadow of a doubt. He, once he'd learnt his coping mechanisms mm. with pressure, he was unstoppable. He was such a good, such a good goalkeeper. Yeah. And we spoke about, we touched on, sort of, what it was like working under Bruce Rioch, what it was like working under Colin Todd, but you also worked under Sam Allardyce. What was it like working with Sam? Uh, I was briefly with Sam. Mm. Um, Again, Sam came in, I, my last game here, I got a terrible injury on my ankle. It took a long time. Um, so Sam had come in whilst I was injured. And, and he started to make changes, particularly to the background of the club, the, the, the sports science side Massive of things. Yeah, the, the, the expectations of players in terms of time given to the club, um, the methods of um, assessment and you know training methods and he could start he, he was putting it all into place he was bit by bit he was building I thought wow I like this unfortunately uh, the club didn't get promoted so I think we had myself Steve Banks you'll see another youngster four keepers clubs needing to sell get players off the wages bye bye me because um, the other two were on longer term deals um, and I, you can see that at the time Steve Banks was playing ahead of Yussi you could see the potential in Yussi and you could see that Steve Banks was doing the business they were going to be okay with those two they didn't need me anymore um, and there was no animosity um, it's part of football when if I hadn't got injured if I kept my place in the team I could have had a better been in a better position to maybe get another few years that I wanted. I didn't want to leave. 
Uh, and in fact, I nearly came back after a year at Ipswich. Um, it didn't quite happen for whatever reason, uh, but I always knew I was going to live here. Uh, I like the area, I like the people. We've very settled, my children were at school here. Um, so I, just, I desperately wanted to be back here playing, but it just didn't happen. Um, and then I got injured and finished at Ipswich, so it couldn't happen anyway. So. Yeah, you made Bolton your hometown. I touched on it a little bit there, but what was it about? What was it about Bolton that, that kept you here? Um, well, people people are different up here than they say hello if you pass them in the street. Mm. Good morning. Yeah, that that's a big one. That's a big one they, compared they, they to down do, south. You know, it's like a such a like a culture shift. It seems yeah, uh, sort of thing. They just look at the floor down south. Or, <laughs> Or you're scared of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a different, there's a different, definite cultural difference, um, and and it, it just seemed a calmer place to live than than the hustle and bustle of London, which is where I'd come from, and even Cambridge, where where I used to live. It's still quite a big city, very cosmopolitan, very busy city with lots of students. Um, and I don't think city life suits me. Uh, I prefer a quieter time. And, and Bolton was very friendly, very not not quiet, quiet, but just a bit more laid back. A bit like more. a root, uh, an air of like you could breathe, sort of. Yeah, like you could yeah. just relax where you needed to. And that felt very homely to me. Uh, just must, must be my type, I, you know. So I always felt I didn't I didn't want to leave, and then when when the success on the pitch comes into it, you, you build up so many friends and contacts. It's, it's very difficult to leave then, uh, particularly when children come along as well. You know, lots of players in their older careers will move from club to club, but still commute because the children are yeah, based in the schools. Yeah, That's so it. It, it, there comes that point where you, those routes go down. Mm. So. And your final spell in your career was with Ipswich Town. What was it like there? Again, a very magical dressing room. They were they were on the up when I joined them. They had some great players in the team. Uh, got promoted uh, in a quiet playoff game against Bolton. Uh, uh, yeah. Where the referee was. Uh, that was a, he's a, famous, a, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's famous for all the wrong reasons around here. So uh, that was surreal for me uh, because I hadn't left Bolton and I was, although I'd left, there was still a chance I could come back. Mm. Uh, Sam had always said, if we get an offer for one of the two keepers that that I could resign, if someone was going to pay money for Steve Banks or, or Yussi. He, he, I could. So I'm sat there thinking, there's a good chance one of them's going to go in the season. Uh, I've been, Released or the contract's been taken over. I can't remember which way. So I was no longer officially a Bolton Wanderers player, but there was a chance of me going back. Mm -hmm. So I'm sat there thinking, okay, okay, Bolton winning here. I might be okay. Oh, Ipswich are winning now. They want me next year. I'll be okay. Mm. And, and the game swung from, yeah. and then everything that happened in the game. I'm thinking, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing Wanderers players. And I'm saying, lads, lads, stop losing your heads, stop because you're getting all wrapped up in the. And I'm thinking. They're not my lads anymore. But <laughs> so I'm looking at this game. There's so <laughs> two, much going on. Two sets of friends playing each mm. other, yeah. uh, new friends and old friends, and it was it was surreal. Um, and in some ways, I'm glad I wasn't on the pitch because that would have been even worse. <laughs> um, 
I'd have done the job and I'd have been dedicated to my job and been professional. Um, but uh, I don't. I wasn't in a win-win situation. But um, that's as close as you can get, I think, as a footballer, mm. to whichever way it went. I still don't think I would have. I think Banksy would have stayed and, and Yussi would have stayed anyway. I think uh, if if Bolton had won, I don't think I would have come back because those two would have stayed. Sam would have needed them, to be honest. Um, but you know, it turned out the way it did. And Ipswich was a great club. George Burley was a really good manager, great man manager, um, very decent guy as well, very decent guy. And uh, yeah, they, they enjoyed. Well, they got into Europe mm. the following year. That was that was interesting. I managed to travel around Europe. Yeah, the UEFA Cup. Never, never, never played in Europe, but I can say I. We played in Europe mm, and yeah. I, I did the best warm-up at the San Siro you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Never got on the pitch. I think we were 1-0 up after the first leg and I think Christian Vieri scored a hat-trick so it was Christian Vieri 3, Ipswich 1. Um, so that leads pretty nicely into my next question really because you just mentioned the likes of AC Milan, the likes of Christian Vieri. So first I'll ask you about who's the best player you've ever played against, would you say? Chelsea at the time had Zola, Viali, Hullet, wow. Arsenal players. Then you've got Cantona, Beckham, Giggs and Co. Shearer, Sutton, Glenn Hoddle. Uh, I think Glenn Hoddle could still do it now. It's a catalogue. <laughs> it's just you know, all, all the boyhood players that I admired, there's a good percentage of them I managed to play against when I was younger that I was... It was wow! It was like wow. Some played. Glenn Hoddle ran the show and played against Tottenham. Um, but then when we were competing on a so-called level footing, I mean Mark Hughes. We played at the Den. We were one 0 up, and they came out for the second half. And Mark Hughes won the game. I've never seen anyone bully a back four so much as him he was, take over he was enormous player on, in that game he was formidable on his own he won the game he just killed our two centre-halves um, massive impact he must have had a bollock enough off, sorry uh, must have been told off of Sam uh, not Sam um, Ferguson um, yeah, so some big players uh, the Liverpool team you had Michael Owen Robbie Fowler oh, wow um, Peter Beardsley, Ian Rush, Dalglish, some massive players. Against some big names, There's some uh, names there, isn't there? Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. So to flip the coin, who's the best player you've played with? I, I've been asked this loads of times and it's... I imagine the answer must change though because you've played with... For different reasons, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Teddy Sheringham at Millwall went on to have a huge career and even at Millwall he was... He scored goal after goal with Tony Cascarino. Most formidable player I've ever played with was Terry Herlock. I've never seen anyone like him. Probably never will. Down there, don't they? Oh, he's, he's a Millwall legend, but he was... I would have hated to have played... I did play against him, but I would have hated to be in midfield playing against him. He just mm. frightened the life out of you. Uh, Goodney was unbeatable on his day. Um, leader on and off the pitch, you couldn't get past him. He was so strong. He didn't need to be the quickest. As long as you were close to him, he'd win every strength battle. He, you know, and then Alan Thompson, as a youngster, matured into a huge player. 
Uh, and he had John Sheridan, all his know-how, and, and you know, John McGinn scored goals for five. I don't know how he did it. I honestly don't know how he did it. <laughs> he could play Super football. Gel. He could play football, but he could just score for fun. Mm. Other players would miss him. It's like yeah. Just a knock. I don't know how he, I don't know why he went in that place and not that place and the ball came to him. Just usually from David Lee with a cross. Yeah, yeah. And then with Ireland, you know, you play with international players and you see their class and it's but in terms of Bolton Wanderers, I think uh Goodney's right up there because he was consistent, a great leader, a great captain. Led by example. Led by example, uh was dedicated to his sport and he's such a nice guy as well. So the whole package in terms of influence on the pitch all the time probably Goodney yeah. but then you can't take away Peter Beardsley it's difficult Tom Owen John Sheridan Scott Sellers Peter Nathan Beardsley Blake play, Jerry Taggart for me Chris Firkland Jerry Taggart great defenders to have in front yeah. of me you know if you're looking in front of you think right I've got confidence in you I've got yeah. confidence in you we're going to go for it McAteer Stubbs you know just Awesome players, great players, very lucky. Yeah. Just finally, Keith, seeing you've got a Bolton School. Yeah. And I've got a Bolton School graduate sat alongside me. We've seen you yeah, at the academy did. as well. But <laughs> Just tell us about what you're up to these days. Well, I coach the under 16s. I do that part time along with, it was Julian Darby, but he's moved up to first team level. I don't know if he's ever coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave Gardner steps in and, and takes that full time role with his other job and, and I still do my part-time role. And, um, I've, been, I've been at the academy for quite a few years now and the under-16s I enjoy, it's, it's a lot of tactical stuff. Um, technically, there's some great players, um, great players technically. It's just teaching them the game and getting them tactically astute as they are technically. So I, I enjoy that. Um, I always thought I'd, I'd coach goalkeepers for a living. Somehow it's I veered off to outfield players. Uh, the school offered me a job whilst I was coaching their lads many years ago, and that stuck. I enjoy that because um, you're, you're coaching lads who are keen, want to learn, but don't don't have all the tools to accomplish what they want to. You know, the, so I don't I, think you could have summed me up any better, Keith. Thank you. <laughs> but you can, I, I can give them something else. I can give them a. a, a purpose on the pitch a plan a system to play to and an understanding of why you would do this and why you wouldn't do that uh, which would benefit the group in terms of getting results uh, especially against a good opposition where they can outmaneuver if you like um, I've done the goalkeepers at Wanderers for a while uh, and I coached first team keepers at Crewe Stockport Burnley when I first quit playing so it's been interesting at the end it hasn't gone the way I thought it would go but still life is good I enjoy coaching if, if it's goalkeepers or outfield players it doesn't matter I enjoy it I often look at goalkeepers and think he needs to change that <laughs> and he needs to do that so that I think that's my level of expertise goalkeepers I, I never switch off with that I, my wife would vouch for every time match of the day is on I'm pausing it going look at his feet look at his feet match of the day lasts about four hours yeah, yeah. oh yeah four. it drives her nuts he's never you know. seen this he'll never see yeah. look at his feet here because you told me before <laughs> so so that that's uh, but it's in terms of coaching I enjoy what I do and uh, yeah 
at, at the level I'm at with under 16s, I really enjoy that. It's, it's a lot of tactical stuff and it's, it's more similar to first team football, so to speak. Mm. Um, and no doubt you'll have seen the likes of Adam Senior, Sonny Graham, and Ron, and the lads who've come through the system still playing. Well, I was like a proud father when they played against Coventry here. Unbelievable, yeah. That. Yeah, I think that's surreal. I think. N- we still haven't got them. a term for them, the, yeah. the boys, the, the, the youngest. The Bolton Babes. The Bolton Babes. I think that's the state. I think there was all but nine. Uh, no, nine of them I'd coached mm-hmm. okay. um, on the pitch. And I, I was like a proud father when they, they drew them. And uh, Spooners and Gav took the team and I sent them a text message and said, I've never felt prouder in my life yeah. with, with, uh, with children that aren't mine, mm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very much children. They're 16. Uh, I don't know if Finley Lockett was actually 15 at the time. I think he was 16. I think he was, he was 16, the right. second youngest player to um, play for the club. And I'd, I'd coached a lot of those players under 13s. Wow. Now that is a journey. Um, so I'd coached them at 13s and then they moved up. And then they moved up again. Then I went mm-hmm. and got them at 16 again. Um, so I was, I was really pleased really pleased for him and you know we go right back to when I started young players right place right time need a break some of them have had that that break and and uh, possibly they can get some good careers out of it uh, I know Sonny's kept in there Roland's kept in there Callum has had you know extended game time uh, Adam is always involved because of his dedication the type of player he is uh, you know, you can see the managers like those players, mm-hmm. and so they've got half a chance of a good career if they keep working hard, um, which I'm sure they will because I know the characters of the lads. So, and even though we rode our luck in the Coventry game, then Callum King could have had his goal if that chance comes over and doesn't get the block in. <laughs> but like I said, no, what a day! What a day for the club in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to 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 achieve some happiness out of the. Uh, the whole situation mm-hmm. was was good at that time. Uh, and then it, it was, gave the place a lift, and it the place was yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's back to the real world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, me personally, those lads, I felt very pleased for, uh, and still do. You know, I, uh, last week they were overdoing their coaching because they have to train how to be coaches in their scholarships. So yeah. I watched uh, Sonny Graham deliver a session, which was decent. <laughs> so, so you you still follow what's going on out uh, on that green rectangle there? Yeah, I, I don't get to as many games as I'd like to, but I like to get a few in each year or each term, if you like. I work in three blocks. Um, I, I like to come every now and then, but I'm not an every week kind of guy. Uh, well, Saturday mornings will be taken up. Saturday by mornings are school football. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not at school. I go to the academy. Yeah. Um, I used to work Sundays, but I don't anymore. So I get, you know, Sunday off and half a day Saturday off. So it's quite precious time. So oh, yeah. to come to a game is, is all right every now and then, but yeah. I can't do it every week. It's, yeah. uh, the wife would have been absolutely on Well, I admit, I wouldn't see my daughter. Yeah. I'd never see her. So <laughs> <laughs> unless she comes with me, then we have to go to the toilet 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> Right, brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, thanks, Keith. Thank thanks you very much, Keith. No worries. Pleasure.